This message God has given me, I'm not trying to sound dramatic, but it's, it's, I have a kind of certainty and a boldness in my heart that only comes from a clear revelation from God. And the title is Forward into the Future. I've told a, a few people I've talked to lately that I really feel in my heart that the next few um, moments of time, I don't know, months or maybe the next couple of years, but the immediate future is going to change the entire future. I feel that in my heart in a way I can't convey in words, but it's what God has put there. And I think if you really spend time asking Him, you might conclude the same thing. We in this future that we're going into, and I want the oldest ones here all the way down to the youngest ones to hear me. We are going into uncharted territory. What worked when you were young, the same methods cannot be glued on top of this age or this culture and work the same way. It won't work. Everywhere I go, everybody I talk to that I have any confidence in and who has observed this same phenomenon are going around and seeing that the people who claim to be the people of God are dying before our eyes. And that's the future we're going into. We are going into a future, this is what I want you to realize, where people no longer have a desire that they developed from childhood to be good. That's gone. What I saw in in Washington, D.C. when I was there in 2010, the post-religious culture, the loneliness the desperation for community and fellowship I see here now. Not to the same degree, but what happens on the coast comes into the middle of the country. And anybody who lives on either coast will tell you they live in a post-religious climate. The world we live in here in the middle of the country, in this so-called belt buckle of the Bible belt, is the same way And a lot of religious people can't bear to admit it. That's what's on my heart this morning. That's the future we're going into. Now, this all sounds very hopeless. It sounds very negative. But God has put in my heart some direction and some hope that I I pray would be beneficial if you'll listen. First of all, I want to read a verse in 1 Corinthians 14. Something that I think about a lot, I've talked about with some of you, is if we had no concept of what church was supposed to be like, if we didn't learn traditions from our fathers, and we just looked in the Bible, what would church look like? What did the first century Christians worship like? What pattern did they follow? This verse, 1 Corinthians 14, chapter 26... And by the way, I'm trying to project. I'm not upset. We're in a big empty room. So, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. Paul is writing a letter to a congregation who gathers together to worship. And this is what he tells them and implies some things that answer our question. What did first century Christians worship like? He said, when you come together, first of all, they assembled in a public place to worship. The Hebrew letter says plainly, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some people is, but exhort one another while it is today, and even more so as you see the day approaching. Tenth chapter, I believe, of Hebrews. First of all, they came together. They came from their respective homes, their respective places, into a public place, and collectively worshipped God. He said each one has a hymn. So, they had some singing. I guarantee you it wasn't the same songs we're singing. Sammy Cornwell wasn't alive back then. There was no heavenly highway hymns, no songs of faith, no church hymnal. Most of the hymns that we think of as old were written three or 400 years ago. You know what they were probably singing? They were probably singing the songs David wrote. Maybe some of them were songwriters too, and it got lost and we don't know what they were singing. But they were praising God through song. So they met publicly, they praised through song. Also, some of you may have a lesson. There was teaching. Some of you may have a revelation. 
There are times when... Now, Paul said this a different way in another place. He said, let all prophesy. That means speak forth of what God has shown you in your heart, in your private secret time with Him. Primarily, preaching should be a revelation of the heart of God. Not primarily a lecture or exposition. It should be primarily a revelation of God's heart. Which means God has to show the preacher something in his private time with him. Amen. A tongue. Now this here, a lot of religious people have, have gone on a tangent and I'll just say that the context of how Paul uses this word in this letter uh, and in the beginning of Acts on the day of Pentecost makes it clear that he's talking about natural languages. Not a babbling, incoherent, heavenly language that you don't know what you're saying. That's not supported by Scripture. And we could discuss that some other time if anybody wants to. But these were given as a sign of the stamp of approval of God upon His people. That's what was going on some. Or an interpretation, and that is telling what God has said. That's what their services looked like. Did they have a handshake? If they did, it wasn't like we did because he said greet each other with a holy kiss. How many of y'all want me to kiss you when you get here? I mean, that you want, we'll do that, Brother Bob. <laughs> I've noticed, I don't know if y'all have, you notice if you have some friends from the Middle East, they're right up in your space, right up, they hug you cheek to cheek, usually. Most Americans I know have a three-foot personal space bubble. I apparently don't, because a lot of times when I'm talking to people, I notice them doing this. Alex is like that too. A lot of times when I talk to him, I'm going, leaning back. What is the point? We have all of these patterns, habits, and traditions that we think are church, and we don't know. What church is, per Scripture, is coming together, public assembly, singing, teaching, revealing what God has shown you, and talking of His goodness. Now, he clarifies all of this stuff, if it's done appropriately, let all things be done for building up. Uh, Authorized version says for edification of the body and of Jesus Christ. Not of yourself. In emotional flavors of religion, you see a whole lot of self-edification. People get up and they say something that brings attention to them. You can tell if something is of God or not by where your attention is drawn. When they're finished, are you thinking of God and His blessing and His goodness? Or are you thinking of that person and either how crazy they are or how special they are or whatever you want to say? Which one? So, that's what worship looks like in the first century. I don't know how you all feel, but my feeling, I believe the Lord approves of this, anything that's not that is optional. I don't care what kind of songs we sing. I don't care when or if we have a handshake. I don't care if we pass a plate. By the way, we never do that here. All of that is things that we've added on top of the pattern that Jesus Christ established. Part of going into this future that we're going into is to only take the things into the future that He actually told us to. Everything else can be a stumbling block and a distraction to the people we're trying to reach. I have been talking to lots of people, praying, seeking the Lord, Scripture, Losing sleep over what we're going to do about the future. I have been looking for a method. I didn't realize it until this week. God put this message on my heart. And He showed me what we need is not new and better methods. What we need is better men, better women. I was talking to a dear brother I have a lot of confidence in and just unloading my heart to him and he was doing the same thing. And he said, Josh, we don't need better tactics. We need the change of heart that precedes the change in tactics. 
I've been sincerely asking the Lord and talking to myself and, and thinking and meditating and saying, Lord, well, should we just throw out all our songs and sing different ones? Should we do this? Should we do this? And listen, there is no perfect method we can copy because a method was not passed down from the founder of church. Jesus didn't establish a method. He established a body. And I don't know if you've noticed, but your body doesn't always follow the same method. You don't eat the same thing every day. You don't walk the same way every day. You don't walk the same number of steps every day. Some days your left foot is sore and you hobble around and you favor it. And a church congregation, which is God's called out people, is made up of individual body parts that at different times affect the congregation in different ways and it changes the appropriate method that should be followed. This is in my heart. It's not something I processed in my mind, what I'm about to say. Some of you are broken body parts who need to have your life healed so that you'll stop making the church body hobble. That's not said with criticism because I am sometimes that body part that needs healing. What we have a tendency to do in church is to pretend that there's no damage to a body part and make it follow a normal method. And all you do is hurt it more. What did James say? Is any among you sick? Let him come before the elders of the church. Let them come and pray. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. In other words, in true worship, there's no pretense. There's no religious airs, suppositions. It's real and it's raw. And that is the pattern that we see. Now, when I say pattern, I mean the established example. I don't mean something we can copy uh, point by point because we don't know what it looked like point by point. We only know the components. As we go into this future, there's really three big things that I've already alluded to, or two things that I want to point out. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the first thing, brothers and sisters. You have to decide for your own self, for your own family, that God is first. And I already mentioned this, but forsake, not forsaking public assembly for worship. There's times that God's people need to come together. Now, how regular? Should it be Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night in our culture? I'll leave that conclusion up to you. Some people go to church too much. Some people probably don't go enough. But the point is, is it drawing you closer to God? That's the selfish point of it. How's it affecting you? The other point is, how are you serving? We need, this is where it goes on an individual level, a personal, a hard level. What do you want the future to look like? It's going to look like whatever you make it look like. Let, 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 let me step back for a moment. And I want everybody, if you can, I don't know how your brain will process this, but if you need to like picture yourself stepping back and looking or whatever that looks like for you, and consider this age that we live in. Every church I'm aware of is diminishing in size. I can't name a thriving, powerful congregation that's been established recently. Even outside the ranks that we would consider the true worshipers of God, every denomination, the big, big churches are shrinking. The mega churches are still growing, some of them. And the medium churches are shrinking. And the little startups are growing. That's the elephant in the room, it's the truth. We need a generation of people, in light of recognizing that, to rise up again. This is for us individually, and it will show collectively when we come together. To rise up again and embrace the simple truths of right living. Those kind of truths that there's absolute morality... That some things are right regardless of the winds of societal norms. That some things are right no matter the cost. 
We have been conditioned in my generation to weigh the cost of everything and that affects whether we think it's right or not. And if you think about it, you know you do that too. I do it. We've been conditioned to do that. Is it really worth it for me to make this stand? And you think about what it's going to cost, how it's going to affect your family, how it's going to affect your friends, how it's going to affect your career. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's how we're wired now. We need a people who embrace the truth that character is more important than accomplishments, that it's more important to be good than to look good. We, this uh, face, my face, Instagram, vlog, blog, podcast, culture that we live in. By the way, those things can have some good benefit. People are always trying to look good. And we're not so worried about being good. There was a difference. In the preceding generations who established what we think was the right way, they were more concerned with what was on the inside than what was on the outside. And now we have a generation that parallels what we're always reading about. In the Old Testament, they make the outside clean. The inside's full of dead men's bones. Emptiness. Deceit, wickedness, treachery. You know what the Lord said over and over? I'm not looking for sacrifices. I'm not looking for worship services. I don't want blood offerings. He even told Moses that. Remember when I brought you across the the big sea, the river? I didn't tell you to sacrifice back then. There wasn't a law back then like that. God has always wanted one thing, obedience. And to be able to obey, you have to know what God is saying. You can't know what God is saying if you don't spend time with Him. And you can't know what He's saying if you don't know His written Word. This culture we live in has taught us to always be focused on what we're doing. I'm affected by it. I preached a sermon a while back about millennials, and I mentioned, I quoted a a speaker named Simon Sinek, and he pointed out how millennials are always saying, I'm not making an impact. And so they'll spend eight months or a year or two years at their job and bail Go do something else because they weren't making an impact. That's in me too. I've been wanting to leave my job for eight and a half years. And I've been there ten in January. We're all affected by it. Now the older people, you may think you're not, I'm talking to some other generation. How much Netflix did you watch ten years ago? People who are 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. How much... How much uh, House Hunters and Home and Garden Network and, and all these, these things that take up so much of our time. And so let me, let me just say directly, bluntly, the problem with God's people is we don't spend time with Him anymore. All of us. This is the new age we live in. And so we have people who haven't spent time being empowered by the presence of God going to people who spend even less time knowing God and trying to tell them how to fix their lives. It doesn't work. Moses spent 40 days, more than 40 days, listening to God. He came down from the mountain glowing. Could you even spend 40 minutes listening to God? Now, this is not a beat-you-up sermon. That's not the point. These are questions that you have to ask. You can't, we can't just keep going through the same motions, doing the same thing, and expecting different results. That's the definition of insanity. Our culture, as I said, has always taught us to be focused on what we're doing. But we need a new generation of people who is more concerned with who I am while I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing than what it is that I'm actually doing. I've said this before about a different set of custodians, janitors at my workplace, but I say it now about another one. Happiest person I work with. Picks up trash all day. Cleans up messes all day. And he's always encouraging to me. He's from a generation that was taught to be more concerned about who he is while he's doing whatever he's doing than doing something important. These are the kind of things that's going to change the future, not only for our society, but for the Lord's churches. And it only starts, the only way it can start is inside of yourself individually. Our job as God's people is not to establish and perfect a better methodology. It is to allow our hearts, our minds, and our souls to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. 
I want you to know that your identity, your identity is more important and it's more than the transient set of circumstances that you're caught up in right now. When somebody asks you, who, what do you do? Our culture's trained us this way too. We say, I am, and then we list our occupation. I've resisted that since high school. People would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wasn't trying to be snarky, but I always said, I want to be me. As far as the job, I'm not sure yet. There was something stirring in my heart back then, something of the imprint of God that I recognized that my identity could not be tied up in a secular career. And even to this day, I have trouble saying, I am a rating veteran service representative. I try not to ever say that. I don't want the methodology of that place to influence the the identity that I have. The only thing in my life I'm comfortable saying I am is I am a preacher. Because God made me that. He gave me that identity when He called me with a supernatural, holy calling and set me apart in a way that I didn't want. To do a job I didn't want. And it's, it cost. I'm thankful for it now, but it's hard. There's a cost. You might say, I am a child of God, but oh, resist saying that you're your occupation. Identity is so much more than your transient circumstances. You're not just your job. Listen, you're not your failures. You're not your past mistakes. There's some song lyrics I love that says, um, you're more than the choices that you've made. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You've been remade. David tells us we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Paul writes to... In his Ephesian letter, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In Revelation, we see that Jesus has made us a kingdom, priest to God and the Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You are too important to be defined by a circumstantial, transient occupation or anything else. You're God's child if you know Him. And you need to carry yourself like it. You need to have that kind of confidence and boldness that comes from knowing who you are and whose you are. That is the kind of thing that's going to transform the Lord's churches. Personal identity change. It'll be a group of people coming together who are so confidently reliant upon God that they leave behind any self-distractions, jealousy, envy, and murdering, strife, all those things, they leave it all out. They come together and they want one thing. I want you to be lifted up, my brother. I want you to be better. I want God to get glory. Let me read you a definition of what humility... This is a good definition. Humility is the God-given self-assurance that eliminates the need to prove the worth of who you are and the rightness of what you're doing. God-given self-assurance. When you're really humble, when God is lifted up, when He's exalted in your heart and in your mind, you stop living your life for the praise of men. That is part of the transformational change that we need inside of God's churches for each member of the body in particular. How many times have you sat back and looked and said, this isn't working, what we're doing, what do we need to try? Maybe you haven't, but I've been asking myself that for years. And God is showing me. You don't need to just try something new, you need to be a better person. A better man. Somebody who's more hungry for the presence of God. Somebody who wants His truth more. Somebody who wants to be guided by His precepts. Somebody who wants to be clothed with the Holy Spirit. So stop defining yourself by what you're not. Don't define yourself by your job or any other temporary task or season in life. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you're His child. And that's your identity. And what is better than being a child of God and a brother and fellow heir of Jesus Christ? I want you to hear this too. Jesus teaches this in His parables. He taught it in His life. But this is the best way I've heard it put. This is part of the personal transformation that we need for the future. 
And listen, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. That is a truth that if you apply to your workplace, if you apply to your life, if you apply to your secular career, there will be blessings that follow you and the mercy of God that you're intangible. The way you do anything is the way you do everything. There are always people watching who recognize he's not lazy about taking the trash out. He's not lazy about cleaning. Keeps his house clean. I I started making my bed up recently. I've told you all about that. And it actually changed my life. And later I saw a Navy, I guess he was an admiral, give a, a speech. And that was his title, Make Your Bed. He said, at least on the worst day, at least you did one thing right. <laughs> if you had days like that, and maybe you didn't even make your bed, you did nothing right that day, and you go to bed feeling like a failure. Listen, it's so small, and it starts out your whole life. The way you do anything is the way you do everything. Are you faithful in small matters? This is a personal, piercing question. And if you're not, it'll hurt you and you'll be condemned. Are you faithful in small matters? Are you thankful in hard times? Or do you grumble and complain? Are you gracious in the face of success? we got this weird religious culture that, that uh, we're attached to where people think what you should do with success is reject it. No. If God has given you success, if He's made you good at something, you do the best you can, you embrace it, and you're gracious about it. Thank you, Lord. God's people are supposed to be a people that are so dedicated to the lives He's given us to leave, you, you, to live. When we used to look in the past at the way people lived, Christians, do you know most inventions in the world were made by Christians? Do, do your research. You'll see. We're supposed to be the best we can. Are you long-suffering in the face of opposition? Oh, that's hard. It's so hard for me. I'm going to get back to that because it's so important. I want to give you just, I think, four points that the Lord gave me for the future. What, what do we need for the future? The first one is the most important. We have to have an unwavering expectation for and reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God. We have to have an unwavering expectation for and reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God. I'm going to say it again because they say three times makes it sink in. We have to have an unwavering expectation for and reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God. Nothing you do corporately in terms of worship, in terms of church, will matter at all if it's not led by the Holy Spirit. My generation, including myself at times, has lost the ability to wait on the leadership of the Spirit of God. What we need, and I've preached about this over and over lately. Those of you who've heard it, I won't apologize because apparently you need to hear it again. God wouldn't have given me this message. What we need is people like Moses who say to the, say to the Lord, what, He offered Moses. He said, listen, these people are stiff-necked. I'm going to destroy them. Moses said, don't destroy them. He said, okay, I won't destroy them. You can have all of my blessings. I'll send my angel with you to protect you, but I'm not going with you. We have a church culture today who would have taken that offer from God. God said to Moses, you can have all my blessings, but you can't have me. And Moses said, no, thank you. He rejected it. We have a church culture in this world we live in that has infected every denomination I'm aware of that is happy to settle for the comforts and blessings of God without His presence. Moses said no. He said, unless your spirit goes with us, don't take us away from here. And so all the admonitions that this congregation has heard from at least three different preachers, maybe more, 
that we need to be active, that we need to do something. All of that is true. But it starts with the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have any leadership, what you need to do is get on your knees. That's to me. It's to you. It's to all of us. Every person, every member of the body at any of the Lord's churches, God can still lead us. We are not in some new age where we have to go do things on our own because He hasn't told us what to do yet. He still can. God had already given Moses instructions to go into a certain place and He said, you keep going, I'll protect you, I'll give you my blessings. Moses said, I'm not leaving. I will not leave unless your spirit goes. I'll stay right here in this silly wilderness and die with your spirit. Because those people back then had a tangible representation when God's spirit was present. The cloud and fire. When Moses went in to pray, it descended on top of where he was praying and the people stood in their doorway and they watched and they knew without a doubt that God's presence was there. What we need in the Lord's churches is an undeniable representation of the presence of God. Not some silly emotions. People see through that stuff. You just get out away from the culture you used to and come back and you'll see through it too. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter in. Now, that doesn't only apply to the end days when you're not going to make it into heaven. Not all who get up and say, God told me, or this or that, are being led by the Lord. And we've all experienced what that looks like. I talked about how we need the leadership of God collectively, His Spirit. And Moses was talking about the congregation. Don't take us out. But we also need the blessing and the leadership of the Holy Spirit personally. You read a little bit earlier, chapter 31 in Exodus, and it says that God set apart and selected these men who were going to do the work on the tabernacle, and it says He filled them with the spirit of wisdom to be able to do this job. You know what we need instead of pulpit committees and deacons meetings and popularity contests? And I've heard about some of those lately. Churches say, I mean, over and over and over, calling preachers that aren't supposed to be there, and the preacher knows and the church doesn't. Scary. You know what we need instead of that? We need people that God has put His hand upon. They might not be the smartest in that capacity, but they might be. See, when God had called apart, a, I think His name was Aholiab and some of those people in the 31st chapter, they were the best at what they did. Because the Spirit of the Lord rested upon them and gave them wisdom to be able to do it. Now, did He give them a supernatural gifting? Maybe. Because they were slaves building brick walls, making bricks. I don't know if they had other jobs. That's the only one we hear about. But the point is God blessed them. And we need not only a collective leadership of the Holy Spirit, but we need a clothing, personally, an imbibing, a taking in and a resting upon of the Spirit on me personally and on you personally. We see this represented in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Don't bother turning, you can read it later. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you stay here in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Authorized version says, uh, until you're endued with power from on high. Jesus leaves, and his instruction to the people is wait. Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything until the Spirit empowers you. What do we make of that in this generation? Are we going to wait until the Spirit empowers us? Are we going to seek Him until... When I say wait, I don't mean sit around and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I mean seek Him desperately, earnestly, like we have the example of the woman who came before the unjust judge over and over and over, the importunate widow, over and over and over and over. And finally the judge, who wasn't a righteous man and didn't fear God, said, I'm going to answer her request just because I'm sick of her bugging me. Jesus said we should pray to the Father in heaven like that. You didn't answer me today, God, I'll be back tomorrow because I need this thing. The thing I'm talking about is His presence, His leadership. And until I have it, I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to do something without Him. I also don't want to sit around and do nothing. So what does that mean? It means I have a burden to find out what God wants. So do you. See, that was the main difference in what we compare the golden age of, I don't know, 
church culture in this country. Everybody talks about the good old days, the revivals, and the power, and all of these things. There were quite a few differences. One was they didn't schedule an annual revival that's been on the same week for 40 years. They had time to actually go because they lived in a more of an agrarian culture. The people had less money saved, so they spent less money on vacations and more time locally. All these things allowed the people to put their minds, hearts, and attention into seeing what God wanted and then going there collectively after they prepared individually. You know what happens in revivals today? Everyone I've preached in, and I can tell the people don't like it, I spend the first five or six days preaching to the church. Oh, they want you to get up and start hollering at the lost. Get up here and seek the Lord. Don't you care about your soul? When somebody's really dealt with by God, it doesn't take much coaxing. His presence draws them. Not only that, Jesus taught us in the 14th chapter of John, it's recorded, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've told you. How many of you have had God guide you in your life? Have you? Show me. Have you all ever had God guide you about anything in your life? Do you think He stopped doing that? And yet, so many of us live our lives as if that's the way God used to interact with us and now we have to figure it out on our own. You know what I've realized? I can't live that way. I have to have the active, involved guidance of the Spirit or my life is a mess. Are there things I still do? You better believe it. God never leads me to get up and go to work. Because it's stupid not to. For me. How am I going to pay my obligations without money? How am I going to get money without labor? How am I going to labor without a job unless I have my own business? God doesn't have to tell me to do that. But the things that we need His leadership about, we should unwaveringly demand His help. Come before the throne of God boldly to obtain mercy and favor in time of need. Lord, I don't know what to do. You have to show me. Or I can't do it. And you know, when God shows something to His people, there's always, whether it's personally or collectively, there's always a peace that attends it. You know, when God's really in something, there's an underlying stable peace. And our culture has trained us once again to look for the emotional tumult, the excitement, the uh, adrenaline, emotional adrenaline rush that comes from uncertainty and chase that. We see it in so-called being in love. You know what that is? It's the emotional turmoil that comes from uncertainty. I had somebody ask me recently, how do you deal with the roller coaster of dating? <laughs> and I said, I realize it's not real. That's not real love. Real love is stable, sacrificial, it's peaceful, it's right. It feels like being at home because God made it that way. All real things of God are like that. I've got three more points I'm going to go through more quickly for the future. The first point I've said, we need an unwavering expectation of reliance upon the presence of God. This is a given that unfortunately, I don't know why it's been neglected, but it has. The next point is we have to have discipleship. You can read this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, but Jesus said, go into all the world. The first part of that is go. One of the main problems facing congregations today is nobody's going. You know why? And I'm not talking about on some two-week mission trip in, in another country with people who have darker skin than yours. It's going every day. It's when you're on the way to work and, and there's a little tug to go talk to somebody that you do. It's, it's being willing to listen to people's problems and issues. It's being where you are and going. And sometimes it's going far away and sometimes... It's not. That's the first part of it. He says, go in all the world, make disciples, teach them and baptize them. And then he says, teach them to obey. Teach them to obey everything I've taught. We've got this culture of lawlessness. Without a vision, the people perish. That scripture means when, when there's no direct revelation from God, the people cast off restraint. The people become lawless when there's no direct revelation from the Lord. Let me show you 
a time in history when the nation was like that. This was a time when there hadn't been uh, answers from the Lord and prophets like there used to be. And there was a man that came up named Asa. This is the Second Chronicles 14. I'll just read real briefly. Chapter 10. Second uh, um, Chronicles 14, verse 10. Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of uh, Zephathah and Marsha. And Asa cried unto the Lord his God, O Lord, there is no one like you to help. Between the mighty and the weak, help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we've come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa, before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Where did he learn that? It was in a time when people weren't doing that. God raised him up to say, God, you have to help. That kind of deliverance. The kind of reliance upon the Lord is one of the things that people need to be taught. Part of this discipleship, I'll just touch on these two words. I've preached on it before. We do have to have orthodoxy. That's right teaching, right believing. have to have it. Paul told Timothy, you need to behave yourself in a certain way in the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. But not only that, we need to have orthopraxy. That is right doing. And I want, I've said this before, but I don't think we get it. We're not really doing the right thing if it doesn't produce the right thing. What does orthopraxy look like? What is right? In other words, what does it look like to be a child of God? If you really believe the things God taught and you really imbibe His teaching and His Spirit, you will become transformed into a person that looks more like Jesus. What does that look like? Let me ask you a question and this will reveal your heart to you. And you don't answer publicly, but just just think about it. Would you rather be right or kind? Now that is a false dichotomy. You can be both. But I'm asking it that way on purpose. Because most people we associate with would rather be right. And in doing that, they're automatically not right. Because Jesus taught clearly the only way to fulfill the law is through love. You can do everything to the letter of the law and neglect love and you've completely missed the whole thing. You can have love and miss some of the points of the law and still be pleasing to God. Love covers a multitude of sin. So would you rather be kind or right? I don't know the answer for you. More and more, the older I get, the more I'd rather be kind. And you know, it's the hardest thing for my personality. I'm so unkind to the people that I love the most. I don't say that as a dismissal. I don't say it as anything except the truth that breaks my heart. See, you find out what kind of person you really are with the people you're closest to, maybe your wife, maybe your husband, maybe your mama. And what comes out is the motivation of your heart. And God has to transform that unkind, broken, messed up person in my case, that I am, into someone that he can use. And he has to do it over and over and over. I'm reading this book. I would recommend it. It's, uh, it's called Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout. And the man who wrote it wrote about his father who dropped out of school in the third grade to go work on his family farm. Never went back. And yet, he lived a life with such an example before his sons. One of them became a judge. One of them became a preacher and and speaker who speaks to thousands and thousands of people. And he taught them, kind deeds are never lost. You can always be kind. You know what our culture is missing, even among the people who claim to be God's people? Really missing kindness. You know what kindness is? It's not just speaking nicely. That's one element of it. 
But kindness, by definition, if you look up the Greek word, it means to show yourself useful. Kindness, at the very essence, is recognizing that somebody around you needs something. And in doing it. Maybe they need a hug. Maybe they need a compliment. Maybe they need a kind word. Maybe they need you to look in their eyes for 20 seconds and listen to what they're saying. And not think you already know. Because you've heard it all before. (laughs) See, that's not being kind. And it's hard. I have a friend at work that we wouldn't see each other anymore because he works at home and I work at home. And But used to, we would talk. I've told some of you. He was my food buddy. Big, tall guy. He had a back problem, so he was in a motorized scooter most of the time. And Every time I would come talk to him in his pod, he would turn his chair, look squarely in my face, put his feet up on his desk and fold his arms and listen no matter what we were talking about. Everybody else there was so busy, looking busy. I had some of my millennial buddies tell me that. I I learned in college how to look like I'm doing something important. So that's what they do at work. They look like they're doing... No, him, he's an older, he's my mom's age. And he would look, give me his whole attention, and we'd talk about whatever we were talking about. And I never realized until I was preparing for this sermon how much that made me feel valued. And loved. We loved each other and do. He's my brother. He was kind to me. And that brought out in me when he treated me that way, just like the janitor when he's kind to me, it brings out a kindness in me that's not there inherently, and I want to be nicer to people in turn. Let's read real quickly 1 Corinthians 13, just a few verses. I was thinking about this the other day when I was eating. I was in a a restaurant, so I had to just stop thinking about it because I... Couldn't handle it. Love is patient. Love is kind. The first two descriptive words Paul gives to love is patience and kindness. You know the two things I struggle with most? Patience and kindness. That may apply to some of you as well. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. There's no jealousy of somebody around you doing better than you. There's a thankfulness that they did it. It doesn't boast. Remember, when you're really humble, you don't need to talk about how good you are at something. Because you know you're secure in the Lord. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. You know how many people who claim to be God's people and they're so rude? There's a good thing about manners. And God bless the parents who teach your children manners. Thank you. Because that's part of love. Love doesn't insist on having its own way. Every really happy marriage that I would want to model mine after someday, that is one of the main components. One of the parties is always willing to defer, say it's not worth it. I love you too much to argue about that. I don't have to have my own way. And when that happens, you see this, a soft answer turns away wrath, and usually the other person is convicted by that, and they become softer too. Not only that, but love does, it it rejoices with the truth rather than rejoicing in wrongdoing. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The answer for the future that we're facing... You just read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, over and over and over. And if we can individually become like that, we'll collectively be able to be used by God. Love is patient, love is kind, not envious, and all of that. Two more points I'll touch on even more quickly. Not only do we need the presence of God and right teaching and right practice, but we need... This is part of the presence of God, a personal experience and accountability with God. I mean, you need to really know Him. And I want to ask everybody here, everybody listening to this recording, do you really know God? Do you really know what He wants for your life? Do you really know when He's speaking? 
Does he speak to you? Have you ever heard him? What does his voice sound like? Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and another one they will not follow. Are you unsure whether God's leading you or whether it's your own mind? Get to know him better. How does this happen? Prayer. Now, I want to be clear. What I'm talking about is not just getting down on your knees and talking nonstop to God for half an hour or something. It's listening as well. But if we're honest, another way our culture has changed, do you pray like you did 15 years ago? If you're honest. I mean, I'm talking about intentional, purposeful time with God. I'm not talking about driving down the road and thinking. Sometimes we have these internal mental dialogues and we call that praying and it's not. Sometimes something like that is praying. But a lot of times it's just us playing through the future in our own head. Are you as intentional about seeking the Lord purposefully daily as you used to be? I can tell you as a whole, His churches are not. Which means individually the body parts are not. That's a place you say, I don't know what to do in the future. Do that. When you don't know what to do, pray. And when you get done talking, listen. The only thing I've ever done in my life that any quantity of it is not wasted is prayer. I've preached too long. Where some, some of y'all might think that's the case today. I don't, I've preached too long where some of it was wasted. I've spent too much time reading where some of it was wasted. I've spent too much time talking to people, but I've never, ever spent too much time talking to the Lord and listening. When you read these accounts of men of old who were faithful to God, I, I heard the other day about a man who was so intentional about prayer that he had a daily time scheduled with God and he declined an appointment with a king. Do we even pray at the same time every day? I usually don't. Maybe we should. Those are the kind of things that our past generations did that we're not doing. There's listening, I said, and there's Scripture, knowing God's Word. I mean, this book is so wise, and it knows the answers. And I'm not talking about it like the book's alive, but I mean there's so much wisdom in here. How to conduct your life, how to live, how to be successful, how to be happy is all in here. Do we spend time in it? Let me ask this, and you don't have to answer. How many of you actually really studied the Sunday school passages this week? Did you really sit down and study? I won't even look at you, so your face won't give it away. Did you really sit down and study, spend time dwelling on it? Did you? That'll tell. I mean, are you actually hungry to, to know? You know, when I read it on the way here in an audio Bible, it's better than nothing. But I got convicted about that. I spent some time in an Amish community. They live like people lived 150 years ago. And it was an herb hike where they took us through the woods to find plants that are medicinal and edible. And one of the houses had us in their home for lunch. And we sat on their giant front porch. I went through their house. And their office consisted of a one-person table up against the wall in the living room with a King James Bible and a Strong's Concordance. And both of them were worn out. And that man spent hours poring over those scriptures. Sometimes I wonder if all of our technology and convenience and ease has made us not even dwell on God because when verse pops in our head, we just punch it in our phone. We don't even have to really think about it. We just go find it and then we can say it and then we can just pretend it means what we think it meant. This scripture is, is so helpful. Spend time in it. I'm not saying that with criticism or condescension. I'm telling you, that's what we need. The fourth point, this is what I'm going to close with. Not only do we need the Holy Spirit, we need right teaching, we need a personal experience with God. By the way, all His people spent time with Him. All the examples we have. We need future hope. We need hope. I want to tell you there's a passage in Scripture that says hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. One of the worst ways to derail hope is to give people false hope. Don't do that. Don't talk about something as if it's a certainty when it's not. Don't say God told you something if He didn't. 
Don't project the future that you think can come in front of the people now. That's not hope. Hope is trusting in the promises of God. Hope is knowing no matter what the future holds, no matter what kind of economic status I'm in, no matter what his uh, congregations are like, no matter what the culture looks like, God will be faithful. That is hope. And our generation needs a restored sense of hope. And for people my age, it'll be the first time they've ever felt it. My age group, millennials, have been raised in a culture where hope is totally absent. That's why suicide rates are higher than they've ever been. That's why people are more miserable than they've ever been. Part of this future hope, listen, what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Part of the future hope is recognizing not only is no kind deed lost, but if you love somebody, it's never lost. If you spend your whole life on somebody and it shows them God's love and they end up coming to know Him, your life wasn't wasted. If you live your life in a way where you're a good man and a good father, good husband, your life is not wasted. If you live your life in a way where you're faithful in the small things, like that janitor at work, my friend John, who's always nice to me, his life is not wasted. Part of the future hope is also knowing that truth is never wasted. It's worth standing for the truth if we never see the results at all. That's one of those things that is right. Regardless of the benefit and regardless of the cost, you have to stand for what is true. That was part of the difference in these generations that I think produced what we're trying to produce. That's how they lived their lives. A man's word was his bond. We always hear this said, but that's really the way they lived. Not everybody, but in general. Not only standing for the truth, but standing and proclaiming the truth as well. This part is maybe the the most important for your future hope. Time is never wasted with God. What I mean by that is you're always worried about time. When are we going to get out of here? When are we going to do this? When are we going to do that? How long is it going to take? God exists outside of time dimensions that govern this universe. He's the one who put them there. You think He's worried about you taking 30 or 50 or 80 years to do something? It doesn't make any difference to Him. Jesus healed a man who was 38 years in an invalid condition. 38 years for the glory of God. God had a job for Moses and He took 80 years getting him ready. You think Moses ever felt him pay? Poor guy only lived, what, like 120? Two-thirds of his life was spent getting ready. And then he spent most of the rest of his life wandering around in the woods with a bunch of, uh, I don't even know, knuckleheads. I don't know what to call them. Was Moses' life wasted? You think he felt like it standing up there looking down, realizing he couldn't go in the promised land? The people hadn't made it to the promised land yet. Lord, you gave me. I spent 40 years in Egypt. I left it. I spent 40 years as a sheep farmer. And I spent 40 years as a people farmer, which is even worse. And now I'm dying. My life was a waste. And we're still talking about Moses. All these thousands of years later, and we'll be talking about him as long as we talk about Scripture. I'll leave you with this thought. The future will cost us something. Most Americans are perfectly content to spend 30, 40, 50 or more years slaving away at a job they don't like to create a future they think they will like called retirement. What if we had that kind of farsight and that kind of intentional dedication to spiritual things? Not just thinking about where are we going to meet for church two weeks from now, but Lord, what do you want for 10 years from now or 50 years from now? You know how you get to retirement if you get to. It's these constant, almost thoughtless, intentional over and over and oh, you keep doing the things that, that, that work. And it seems like nothing at first. You ever seen compound interest, how it works? It's amazing. You put a little bit of money in something and wait a few years and it just flips over and flips over and exponentially multiplies. 
the spiritual blessings of God can exponentially multiply, but it requires us to be faithful right now. And let me continue the financial analogy. You might have to give up your spiritual Starbucks. What I mean is an immediate spiritual gratification. That's what happens when you want to prepare for a financial future. You give up immediate uh, physical gratification. You save money. You put it somewhere more useful. That may be spiritually what it takes. We let go of the immediate, God, I have to go somewhere that makes me feel good today. What does the Lord want? What will it take? I pray that this is a helpful, encouraging message. and It's definitely instructive, but I, I hope it's also stirring. Um, be loving. Be kind. Be gentle. If Jesus, who was the omnipotent in the flesh, could be gentle, who am I to be so gruff and harsh sometimes? If you don't know the Lord, I want to say this. Anybody here, anybody listening, you can know Him, you can seek Him, you can have peace. Only He can give it. And when He does give it, you'll know. When He gives you His peace, you'll know. For those of us who know Him, we'll know when He leads us, if we seek Him. God bless you.